Melvin Burgess's children's story, Cry of the Wolf, tells the tale of a man whose quest is to kill the last wolf alive in England. One female survives, wounded by the hunter, but she survives long enough to teach her sole surviving cub a few skills before she then is killed by the man. The cub is raised by a human family, but being a social animal, he waits in vain for the scent of another wolf. When I consider how badly we treat other intelligence beings here on Earth, I'm rather pleased that extraterrestrial intelligence continues to elude us. It would be better if we were at peace with ourselves and that we, we, we care for our living planet before we blunder about in the nether reaches of the universe. Tragically, when we have found other intelligent life here on our planet, we have tended to do it harm rather than give it respect. Nevertheless, we have a notion and a sense of fairness and justice. Else we would not agonise over the problems this presents. We have an increasing understanding about our planet and that we should protect it from the harm our activity may be doing. Our intelligence and our capacity to make reasoned choices enables us to do this. Hopefully, it will enable us to repair the damage we have done. We are not alone in having a sense of fairness and justice. It is present in other cooperative animals. The results of a recent study suggest that wolves also have a sense of fairness, and at least of inequity. Wolves hunt, raise pups and defend their territory cooperatively. Equity is important in maintaining cooperative behaviour in the group. Iniquitous treatment leads to aversive behaviour with withdrawal of cooperation. This sense of fairness has long been seen in studies of non-human primates. The psychosocial environment of members of a group in non-human primates has cultural complexity that profoundly influences behavioural development. Such cooperation doesn't involve an incident-by-incident what's-in-it-for-me assessment. It is socially developed and socially maintained. Mutual cooperation maintains social cohesion, not self-interest. Our planet is teeming with intelligent life. Problem-solving is ubiquitous on Earth. It would be easy enough to regard organisms as mere automata or gene-driven machines, but this, I think, is a woefully inadequate understanding of living things and of so much of animal life. We have a strange view of ourselves as the only intelligent beings, but even for us, the gene-centred view of our being prevails, so much so that many question our capacity to make purposeful decisions. That seems odd, given I am writing this with the purpose of refuting such a view. That seems odd, given that I am speaking this 
with the purpose of refuting such a view. Some groups of apes use stones to crack nuts. This use of tools is learned and culturally transmitted to others. They will make choices about what stones are best for cracking nuts. They will sometimes share good stones with other members of their group, but they will also covet a good stone or keep one safe. Apes also use tools to extract water to drink. This is also culturally learned. They have social intelligence and they are able to make social decisions. The use of tools is indicative of purposeful behaviour. The stone is selected and modified to best crack nuts. Nothing excites debate more than the question of whether we can or do make truly altruistic decisions, or whether all our behaviour is gene-directed self-interest. Altruistic behaviour is dismissed, where demonstrated, as being merely reciprocal, a you-scratch-my-back-and-I'll-scratch-yours arrangement. It is said to be self-interested action that preserves our genes in the gene pool. It's odd, then, that I should write this to persuade you otherwise. My genes do not say this. I do. Your genes are not listening to me. You are. The contention of behaviour driven by selfish genes has left a powerful imprint on our politics and our economics. It underpins the neoliberal view of society as an aggregate of individual self-interested behaviour. The operation of markets has been built on this notion. It is used also to justify the iniquitous exploitation of others by a few. It has transformed the very nature of freedom into a, a freedom to exploit. It is a strange notion of freedom that is predicated on biogenic determinism. Yet there is another view. Our actions are not driven by genes. We can and we do act with reason, just as the apes select and modify good stones to crack nuts. So we also produce elaborate and technically complex tools. We use these tools for purpose. Furthermore, we make assumptions about the reason of others. When I see Jack and Jill go up the hill and then come back down again carrying a pail of water, I make an assumption that they went up in order to fetch the pail of water. I might be wrong, or I may be right in my assumption. That isn't really the issue here. What is at issue is that it is a reasonable assumption. It follows reasonable logic. Nor was Jack and Jill's behaviour caused by their genes, any more than it was caused by the feet with which they walked up the hill, or their hands with which they carried the pail. Although in describing how they did what they did involved all of these. We might also hold this assumption about Jack and Jill's purpose with greater certainty if we knew that Jack and Jill needed or wanted water.
that would certainly provide a motive or driver for the action. We might also know that the source of water was up the hill. My statement about why Jack and Jill went up the hill makes a lot of interesting assumptions about behaviour, not least of which is that it is purposeful, it has intention, it is directed, it assumes that actions are or can be intentional. We might think it odd that anyone would doubt this, but they do, and I suppose the problem is best summed up in another question. Where does this intention come from? In answering this, we often end up with a distinctly unsatisfactory dualism, body and mind, as if the two were somehow of different stuff, or no stuff at all. Descartes had this problem. If we are machines, robotic beings, then how could we have minds with intentions, thoughts and actions? He made a curious exception for humans, that we are machines with souls. This became a major distinction between humans and other animals. It was all very unsatisfactory. The modern gene-centred view has substituted another dualism, a bit of the machinery within the machine that drives the machine. In this case, genes. This leads to the same problem. If bits of the machine drive other bits, then how can there be free will? And if there is no free will, then how can there be behaviour truly to be said to be intentional? The answer, I think, lies in logic. Organisms are logically functional, problem-solving entities. They're open processes engaged with their environment not closed systems like machines. Intention isn't a stuff, it is a disposition. Thought isn't a stuff, it is a continuous process. It seems strange to me that when we can see this logic at work in our behaviour, we somehow or other are, as it were, reluctant to transfer this idea when we look at other species of animal life, that we kind of regard this as being this dreadful sin of anthropomorphism, that we uh, shouldn't see it as intentional when cats behave in the way they do, dogs behave in the way they do, and so on, to say that, you know, he, he did this in order to do that, or that's what he thought, or things like this. This is all kind of forbidden, and uh, you know, you're committing some sort of dreadful scientific sin by suggesting that this might be the case. Um, but to ignore the possibility that... Um, other human animal, other non-human uh, animals behave in the same kinds of ways that we do. Not that they have thoughts exactly like ours, but they have intentions, motivations, desires, needs, wishes, wants that they fulfil by purposeful behaviour seems to me to be a completely different question. It seems to me that um, it 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 is. Uh, 
rather sort of silly not to uh, to ignore that logic of the situations that are say that well that doesn't really exist in non-human animals it makes no sense you know if we believe in evolution we must surely believe that there's been some kind of transformation uh, that brought about the kind of behaviour that we have, that brought about the kind of intentionality that we have. I suppose you could have two views of this. You could probably say, well, that's another reason for believing that we don't really have intentional behaviour either, because we've evolved from animals that didn't have intentional behaviour. How could suddenly intentional behaviour exist if that's the case? But let's turn that on its head. We turn that on its head and we ask it the other way around. We can identify intention in human beings. Why can we identify? Because I can ask you, what's the intention I have of speaking to you to persuade you that we have intention? We can ask ourselves, we can tell each other what our purpose is in our behaviour. I am doing this because I expect and anticipate that you will be doing that because... Why can't we do that for other animals? It makes no sense whatsoever. It's rather like trying to understand behaviour without understanding the logic, without understanding the situation, without understanding the context, by removing that. And you see, one of the other things that it did as well, it seems to me, was it was very, very uh, um, convenient to deny other forms of animal um, the kind of feelings that we have. We could say, you know, they don't have the same processes, therefore they don't feel pain, that we can do things to them that we would not consider appropriate or right to do to humans because they don't feel the same way as we do. They can't be frustrated because they don't have purpose. They can't be frustrated because they don't have intention. They don't desire, and yet we know they do. So this is why the whole concept of teleology and teleological explanation, this is why the whole concept of intentionality is so important. To deny it has consequences. It's handy, isn't it, to consider that a being cannot suffer. It's a wonderful ethical escape route that we no longer have to consider Perhaps when we're fishing, that fish feel pain. Fish don't feel pain. I remember being told that when I was very young. Oh, your fish don't feel pain. It's very odd. How on earth would we know that? It's, again, this turning on the head. Well, we can't know it. But because we can't know it, it doesn't mean to say you assume that it doesn't. It means you have to give at least some benefit of the doubt. They have nervous systems pretty similar to our, to our own. They have sensory systems similar to our own. They see, they feel, they touch and so on, similar to us. They can be frustrated, similar to us. So those processes exist. And that's why it's important if you deny intentionality. Imagine that an alien came and discovered us on Earth. Would, it, would they really have an understanding of our behaviour without understanding why we behave the way we behave? Would they have an understanding without knowing that we have desires, loves, hates, feelings for others, that we anticipate the other? I think the anticipation is a, an important part of the context, the contextual logic of intentional behaviour. Anticipating the behaviour of others is part of intelligent behaviour. It's certainly part of um, cooperative behaviour, 
if you're cooperating, you have to have some kind of anticipation of what the other is doing in order that the behaviour could be coordinated and goal-directed. When you see that there's that context to it, it seems absurd that we deny the goal direction. Directionally, directionality exists in many aspects of life as we look at it. Sometimes we can see that it is or has some sort of conscious, intentional component. Certainly that is true in humans. And we might therefore consider that that is also possible in, for example, other mammalian species. It might also be possible in other kinds of species as well. Because we don't know doesn't mean it isn't there. Contextual logic would very often tell us that some kind of conscious behaviour is indeed there. That they are aware of their selves and their actions. I think that... Um, one of the aspects of consciousness is awareness of self. It's almost like making the distinction between the sensory input that is from us, that is us, as opposed to the sensory input which is caused externally to us. That distinction is important and if there is a conscious awareness of it, an awareness of it, then of course that is an, a substantial part of the conscious process of our behaviour. Avoiding harm exists in almost all species of, of animal. Of course that doesn't necessarily mean that they are aware of that potential for harm in the sort of conscious sense, the consciousness that I'm using when I'm talking on this podcast. But certainly consciousness must have evolved. This awareness of self must have evolved, didn't suddenly appear. In which case, when we look at species of animals that demonstrate similar kind of behavioural traits, similar kind of behavioural responses, then it seems reasonable to assume that there is some kind of self-awareness and consciousness at work. Dismissing that seems to me to be leaving out such an enormous amount of information and understanding and leads to a completely erroneous view of animal behaviour. I like to think that um, the main problem that we have with this notion of intentionality and purposeful behaviour and self-awareness and all that kind of thing uh, is precisely because we are aware of the consequences of adopting it. Um, it certainly places a completely different onus of responsibility for one's action if you acknowledge intentionality, if you acknowledge the fact that there are choices that can be made, that there is a freedom of will. That's the important point here. How would you assign any culpability if all action was, as it were, biogenically, biogenetically determined? It wouldn't be the fault of the individual. You may say, well, that's a faulty individual and you might want to punish it. But how can you punish something that doesn't think? How can you punish something that doesn't feel? How can you punish something that doesn't suffer? How can you seek retribution when <laughs> there's a non-feeling 
being involved. And of course, we know that that's not the case. And we lock people up for misdemeanours. We know that they will, to a large extent, suffer from the confinement, from the um, separation from their loved ones and their families and friends and the fact that they can't now have freedom to do what they wish to do. Their free will is frustrated. That's the punishment. The fact that their free will is constrained now by four walls and they're not able now to make decisions without permission. This seeking of permission is again an intentional act. So what then of our quest to find alien intelligence? If we were to find extraterrestrial life, then I think we would judge it intelligent not only by how well it solved problems, but also by whether it had intentions. Only by intention can we understand the cry of the wolf.